Welcome to Art in the Open. I'm Shelley Miller, a Montreal-based artist working in the fields of both permanent public art as well as ephemeral street art. In this podcast, I'll chat with creatives and professionals who work in and around the industries of art and public spaces. Today, my guest is Melissa Proetti. Melissa has played a key role in the production of Montreal's Under Pressure Graffiti and Street Art Festival, which takes place annually and just celebrated its 26th year. Melissa and I talk about the importance of hip-hop culture in creative expression and why community is so important. Thank you so much, Melissa, for being with me today. I'm so excited for this conversation. There's so much I want to get into. Uh, I'm going to start with just reading a bit of the description of Under Pressure from the website. Founded in Montreal in 1996 by graffiti writers Seas and Flow, Under Pressure is the oldest urban culture festival still active today. Its mandate is to support community and urban culture, contributing to the development and radiance of graffiti and all elements of hip-hop on a local and international scale. Managed by a team of volunteers devoted to hip-hop culture, Under Pressure is committed to recreating the vibe of New York City block parties from the 70s. The organizers, graffiti writers, street artists, DJs, MCs, and street dancers do it for the love and dedication to the roots of the culture and continue to work to support and maintain the community through their participation in the festival and all other activities and events connected to the Under Pressure family. So I, I wanted to read that because I really love how much this description actually fits the feeling of being at the Under Pressure Festival. Mm. Um, and I love that mention of family and community mm-hmm. because I've always felt like you really get that sense of like the love that people feel of just being there and that kind of energy that builds when people are all in this place together. Um, can you please explain a little bit more about your role with Under Pressure, how you got involved with the organization? Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to uh, to talk a little bit about that because it's a, a long a long history. And uh, I mean, thank you for for having me here and and you know, thank you for your interest in what we do because it is it's a community it's a community based event. We don't exist without the artists, without the dancers, without the DJs and MCs and and you know just volunteers um, that have that love and appreciation for you know the culture. So you know, not the event and not the flash and glam. Let's say of uh, you know of of having kind of like larger concerts and that kind of thing. I mean, we do it for the culture and what that brings, um, you know, to people 365 days out of the year. So, you know, I think that that's where I actually come into this because I've been involved for 15 years now, and it's it, it's interesting because I, I don't do graffiti. <laughs> I don't at all. Like, I'm, you know, not an artist. Uh, I don't dance. You know, I'm not a street dancer, not a DJ, not an MC. like, not... And I've never been, like, I've never, you know, tried it or anything. It's just, it's just not who I am. However, I started, um, you know, I mean, Under Pressure is, because it's existed for so long, like, was part of my, you know, conscious when I was a teenager. And so, you know, wanted to volunteer one year. Um, my boyfriend at the time was a DJ. He was DJing. So, you know, it was like, well, I'll volunteer. Like, why not, you know? And from day one of volunteering at a festival that I had absolutely no connection to, you know, in terms of participation in the culture, I was like hooked. Because just like you said, when the, the experience that you have at Under Pressure is, you know, 
it's not like anything else uh, that I've ever experienced, honestly. It's like walking into a community of people, um, you know, and people who don't know each other still feel like they're all part of this community together. And having that experience, you just feel so um, part of something and you feel so connected to something that is so alive and so vibrant and so important, you know. And you can tell how important it is to the people who are there because they're doing it, you know, out of their own free will and, and interest too. It's not a contract. It's they want to be there. And so, you know, immediately just experiencing that, I was like, I want to I want to know more. Like, I, I want to know more. I want to help more. I want to just, like, what can I do to, to be more involved? To support this cause. Yeah, you know, and, and so that's how it all started um, was just in that first experience. And I've always, you know, my professional work has always really revolved around community, working with teenagers often. Um, you know, sometimes younger kids do, but, you know, I, I spent most of my professional uh, career working with teenagers and just thought, you know, after meeting artists was, you know, like the, the kids, the teens would love these people. Like they would really connect with them. Uh, they would, you know, be able to share some, you know, some similarities. Maybe something would spark with them just in terms of not trying to, you know, have them uh, feel like they need to become artists professionally, but just have them feel connected to something. Right. Because as we go on, now that was 15 years ago, so, you know, 15 years ago, uh, I mean, you know, society was a little bit different, but, you know, we were just seeing, like, the rise of social media at that time. I mean, since then, this notion of connection is just becoming further and further removed from people's daily lives. And especially younger and younger folks, you know, that, that are growing up with social media as their normal, like, they don't necessarily know what it feels like to be included in something that is not virtual. Right. So, you know, for me, it was like, I want them to feel this. I want them to, to experience what it feels like to be part of a community uh, when, you, when you walk in and to feel like you're important, like you, like you belong there. And whatever it is that you're going to contribute, it's important. And it helps us get to where we're going. And it, to not necessarily go to an event as a spectator, but to feel like... You're, you're part of something. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's interesting about Under Pressure is that even people who are, you know, spectators feel like they're part of it. Because also, because it's been going on for so long, people remember going to Under Pressure as teenagers, then having children and bringing their children to Under Pressure. And so they go through this whole, like, evolution into adulthood and going to Under Pressure every year because it's always happened, that they feel like they're a part of it because, well, without them, there is no Under Pressure, you know? Right. There's no Under Pressure without the artists. Like, there's no under pressure without the people that are there to support it. So we're all kind of part of it together. And that's really when I, you know, understood that as the experience. That's what I wanted to bring into the community centers and the schools and have the students feel the same way that I felt when they go to school. Maybe you're having a hard time with your teachers. I know I did. But if you feel like, you know, you walk in somewhere and you're and you're a really important piece to that puzzle, well, you're kind of less likely to just, you know, say, I don't want to be here and, you know, be a little bit more present in your daily. So that's, you know, how it all started for me. And over the course of 15 years, many things, ups and downs and lots of changes. And and over that time, I ended up taking over, um, you know, in terms of the, it, it's a very much a team effort. I just sort of oversee most of the, the logistics of it at this point. Like we work with the city. So I have, you know, like those are my duties in terms of communication with the cities, uh, trying to, you know, plan partnerships, do all of that kind of logistic work. And then I work with people who, you know, coordinate the artists, the dancers, 
writers, the um, the b-boys, the b-girls, the MCs, the DJs. Like, it, And to me, it's always really important to have people who are very active in those elements of the community kind of organize themselves because it doesn't feel not legitimate, but I guess it just it's it's more honest if it's a dancer who's organizing the dance element instead of right. me because I don't dance. So there's a lot of, you know, sort of things that I that I that I don't necessarily know because I'm I'm not doing it with them. So that's how I've always tried to make sure under pressure runs and, and continues to run. And I think that it's been, you know, successful um, in that way. And, and, you know, I just keep doing the paperwork. And <laughs> it's a very important and essential part of any <laughs> any organization and festival. Is somebody has to oversee all of those bureaucratic things. That's Yeah. I yeah. mean, the more uh, when under pressure was, was younger, um, it was done in a very different way. So it used to be one day event on Sundays, and it would just be sort of like everyone knew it was happening, and they would swarm in and, you know, kind of uh, illegally, I guess, close the the back street there so that they could paint the the Fufuan Electric and you know everything was and it was done in one day up and down and then that was it and it was done on Sundays because there was never anybody around that area of St. Catherine you know on on Sundays particularly there was no you know tourists there was no Quartier des Spectacles like it was just right it's funny you mentioned that because I was going to ask you uh, about the location and the specific part of the city that it takes place and it's stayed it's remained in that spot for mm-hmm. the 26 years yeah. and I was going to ask like why that spot you know why has it why did it start there and why has it remained there so you've kind of started to answer that that it was there was just an opportunity i guess yeah well so it's interesting there's a, there were a couple of years and this is you know before my time so that's really in year like 1 and 2 when it was held uh, it was a vacant parking lot i think on mount royal for year 1 where they just installed like fake wood panels or i mean wood panels <laughs> they put them up and right. and they painted and and they held it there and then in year 2 i think it was done in the parking lot of concordia where i mean it's a, it's a big building now, but there was like a vacant lot across the street from the metro and, you know, kind of went and held it there. And then, you know, I think for Sterling anyway, when he started it, it was supposed to just be like a one-time thing and they were going to do it and then never do it again. And, uh, Anyway, that clearly didn't happen. <laughs> but uh, because, you know, the community got so connected to it, they kept on doing it. And so to move it into a bit of a more permanent location, where it is located now and, you know, has been for, you know, 23, I guess, out of the 26 years, it's a it's a part of the city that, you know, especially 23 years ago, um, was very forgotten in a lot of ways. People didn't... So for people who are not from Montreal, maybe listening and haven't been to the festival... Can you talk a little bit more and describe this area? Like, it's just east of the what's now the Quartier des Spectacles. Yes. So, you know, when you're in downtown Montreal, um, you know, there's uh, now very touristy kind of areas. And, and, you know, I think that, you know, St. Catherine Street has always been sort of a, a major attraction. But once you hit St. Laurent Street, um, everything east of that... Uh, what was known as the red light district for, you know, for a long time up until really recently when a lot of changes started happening. It was it was considered the red light district of Montreal. So any um, activity that, you know, that went on there was, I, I guess it, it was uh, sort of forgotten mm. in that sense, you know, like things, things happened there. Um, it wasn't welcoming for people who were outside of the city. Uh, it wasn't, you know, it or was an area avoided. Right. Maybe. You know, uh, and, and so I think that when you have areas like that, um, you know, maybe 
people look at them or think about them in a very specific way and they have kind of like prejudgments about about them and the people that live there because there are people that live in these areas. Um, and I think that that's very much like graffiti culture. You know, people have a lot of judgment and, and preconception, especially, you know, in the in the 90s about graffiti and who does it and why they do it. And so it, you know, it fits very much with that kind of um, with that kind of area because although people think you know, or they have ideas about what it is, there's a lot more to it, you know, than what people think. And so putting the the festival there, um, you know, it brought art and it brought, you know, graffiti and, and that lively culture to a part of the city and to like this really specific stretch of street that was like forgotten, it, mm-hmm. you know, délaissé in French. It was just like, you know, just leave it and be. some positive energy. <laughs> That's it. So, you know, the idea was um, to bring that community and, and to bring it there and, and, you know, to welcome the people, whether, you know, they were, you know, if there are people who are living on the streets or people who are living in the rooming houses or welcome them, like say, come and take part in this event with us. We're, mm-hmm. you know, we're bringing music and art. And, and the energy of this culture, like you're, you are welcome to come and and be here with us. And that was always the vibe and the intention, um, you know, of Under Pressure was to make graffiti and this culture accessible to people. And so, you know, not only accessible to people who are coming from, you know, outside or far away, but also the people who are who are living, you know, in this area of the city or just, you know. Um, who are living around and, and who are seeing graffiti on a on a daily basis and want to know more. So I think that, you know, the, the location of the festival is really important. Uh, it's important to us and I think it's important to the city and to the people who are who are still living there that we don't get pushed out either. Because a lot of, you know, what we are trying to stand for and, and trying to remind people of is that, like, everyone deserves to have a place in this city. And as the city changes, I mean, we can, you know, use the word gentrification. It's developing. It's evolving. It's, you know, it's it, there's a lot of differences. And as people, you know, especially now in the area where we're located, as, as people who are living there are getting pushed out, rooming houses are getting torn down, condos are going up. Um, I think it's really important that we, you know, respect the people that are able to stay there, that we pay homage to this part of the city. That was a really, it's a really important part of any city, you know, is is, is that element of, of city life as well. So I think for us, you know, staying where we are located is is really important. And it speaks a lot to, you know, the, the festival and, you know, what we, what we stand for, basically. Right. Now, you mentioned that it began as a one-day event, and currently it is a... Two or three day event? Well, it depends on how you calculate the days. When we do the event in person, it's a two day outdoor event. However, we start our events um, on the Wednesday. So we'll do indoor, you know, live painting events, vernissage. We always do uh, an exhibit. Uh, we'll do, you know, dance events. So we do Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So now it's a five day right. event. Right. <laughs> So I also wanted to mention the fact, uh, to sort of segue, you, Melissa, as somebody who works with Under Pressure, and also you are an educator, and you mix those two things in your love Mm -hmm. of urban culture. Could you talk a little bit about how you have implemented um, urban culture into your teaching practice and the program that you initiated or co-initiated at James Ling Ling? Ling. At James Ling. Ling High School in Montreal. 
Sure, yeah. I mean, they kind of traveled a very parallel road together. I was introduced, you know, to urban culture, to graffiti uh, and street art specifically through Under Pressure. And at the time, you know, kind of wanted to segue the work that I was doing in community centers with what I was seeing and learning uh, at Under Pressure. And so just started slowly um, working primarily with Sterling at at that time. So in 2010, I think it was 2010 or maybe 2010. 2009 that I did my first project, you know, with with Sterling uh, in a school. So Sterling is C's. He's one of the co-founders of Under Pressure, Um, you know, graffiti writer for 25 years, has now gone on to become a politician and elected in in Montreal. Um, But in 2009 was not. So he was, you know, doing art projects and, and he does a lot of like public speaking and stuff in schools. And so I wanted to see, you know, how this how this happened like what you know what do artists do when they go into schools because i had my own idea of what i did in schools but you know what does a graffiti writer do when he is going to school so i went with him and and you know kind of um shadowed him a bit and and saw the way that kids would respond to him what they liked what they were connecting to and i learned a lot you know just kind of through observing at first because again i think you know the first thing that i learned and was really really important is that as a non writer like you're you're really um you have to know your place kind of in in the culture. So I'm not here to tell you how to do graffiti because I don't do it. I'm here I can support, you know, this learning by bringing an artist in. I will never do a program by myself and I think it's really important to honestly support the culture in that way too and not try to take credit for stuff that I that I don't do. Um, you know, and, and I learned that through even just watching the interactions that Sterling would have uh, with the students. And they're very interested in, in knowing, you know, they, they kids are in and teens, too, but they're, they're really interesting in that way because they want to learn a lot before they even, you know, get into doing the the art making. So, they you know, they have so many questions and and, and it's really interesting to, to watch how that knowledge will then kind of translate into the art that they make and how it will motivate them, you know, to to try the things that he's suggesting. So that was like one of the first lessons that I learned was, you know, never do this without without an artist. Right. And, and uh, that's, you know, I always tell that to people too. It was part of my master's research. It was really like without it, not only is it not honest, you know, on, on my own behalf, but it won't be as important and relevant and meaningful to the students that are there. So always, you know, go with an artist. Um, and so once I, you know, sort of figured figured that out, I started working with a few artists that, you know, have the capacity and interest in working with younger people because it's not for everybody. Like right. you have to you have to be patient. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You have to be, you know, sort of willing to um, guide people and, and coach them. And it becomes about, you know, their experience and not your own art. And I think that, you know, artists, uh, they they have the right to really be, you know, interested and, and focused on their own art. So for artists who are, you know, want to focus on on what they're doing, schools probably, you know, not the best places for for them to be like mentoring and coaching. You know, if they're more interested in in kind of finding that balance between what they do and what other people do, yeah. then you know that's a that's a good fit. They're definitely two different skill sets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, they are. I, you see it in in teachers too. Like you see that in in a lot of different kinds of people. You know, so I think there are some people who are naturally inclined to kind of be more on the on the educator um, end of things. So, you know, 
I started kind of developing um, a team of, of artists that I like to that I like to work with that worked well with me so that I could support them and helping conversations go because sometimes that's you know can be tricky too is you know how do you navigate some difficult conversations with students um, some students will you know in one-on-one settings often will kind of open up and, and tell artists things about themselves too and so you know it, it was important for me to, to be there to kind of help everyone you know, navigate these, these waters a little bit. Um, and so that's, you know, that's the, those were the, the, the first steps in terms of like building, building these projects and seeing, you know, what, what we wanted to do, what we could do, and then how we could do it. So was this actually part of the curriculum? Uh, well, no. So the first, the first round or the first few years of projects were not, they were Just most project based. Yeah. They were mostly uh, done after school some teachers invited uh, artists into their class, but often that was like one-off kind of, you know, project-based things that were not being graded, that were not. And that seemed fine because I also was in, you know, struggling to understand how a very traditional grading scheme could work with something, you know, as um, expressive and, and, you know, individual as graffiti is, you know, so I, I, I felt like that was that was a, a, a fine fit at the time. Um, when we did uh, after school projects, when we started the, the program at James Ling, which was in 2010, I started that with Sterling. And the idea was as an after school program, we weren't even going to do a mural like we went in um, you know, just to talk about graffiti, we had like a drawing club, basically. And so it's funny because like, I don't draw. So how I don't even know how this will go. Um, but what we found was that it was exactly what those students needed. And, you know, for our projects and, and everything that I've learned is that you have to be very school specific. And I think I learned that a lot through graffiti, too, is that, you know, it's just everyone is different. Everyone is has their own approach and, and has their own needs. And every school is different. Mm-hmm. So for the students at James Lang, especially, you know, at that time, um, what they really needed was, you know, to have a few extra adults in the building that they could go and they could sit with and they could talk to. And so every Wednesday, they used to finish school at 1230 on Wednesdays. And so we would go in and I thought, there's nobody that's going to want to stay on a half day to right. like after school program, you know. But we had at least 10 kids every week that would come. Some of them would stay until 330. Like we would be there for a long time. And they would just draw in their, you know, in their black books and their sketchbooks and they would talk. And they would talk, and I. They never asked me like why I wasn't drawing, or you know why my drawings were so bad. <laughs> but, um, but they just wanted to be able to talk about how their day went, and then they wanted to talk to Sterling about you know his time in graffiti and like what that was like. But then how that kind of connected to some bigger picture things for them, like the way that people would you know make judgments about them based on a lot of different things, the way that media kind of portrays uh, graffiti, but you know teenagers, different you know how how all. Of those kinds kinds of things work and affect them, um, and it was really interesting because it was you know we went like for a good two almost three months without doing any you know projecty kind of things, realizing like wow this has been a great time, and then the school was like so what are you doing with the <laughs> students like are you do you need materials what do you want to do with them, and then realize like oh maybe we should actually <laughs> try to do something bigger, um, and that's where that you know program got started and it you know evolved over 10 years uh well because yeah we're in 2021 now no it started in 2012 sorry so it started in 2012 and it's all it'll be 10 years next school year 
Um, and it just evolved from like a, a drawing graffiti club. Then it you know became more of a street art club. So they would try many different you know kinds of things, stencils and yarn bombing, and you know had a lot of different guests and stuff come in. And and then you know that was fun and a different kind of learning as well, which eventually segued into building a gallery space inside the school. And, you know, that was like, that's my whole journey as an educator, learning how to, you know, work with different um, student interests and needs as the students changed over those, you know, nine years. And then also, you know, having different experiences myself through Under Pressure, there was, a, you know, the Fresh Paint Gallery and seeing, you know, the different kinds of um, things that could be achieved in that kind of a space and, and wanting to offer that to the students as well. So we built a gallery inside the school and it's still functional. They're, they they have, uh, they often exhibit student art. Sometimes they have, you know, other artists from the community use the space to exhibit as well. It's like a professional gallery. And um, it was just a, a really, you know, it was a magnificent journey. Um, you know, just seeing the way that from from an after school drawing club, like how we managed to to do all of those things. What is it about graffiti and street art practices that is so accessible to kids and youth, in your opinion? It's a, it's a very good question um, because I think it's you know it differs uh, for everyone. Their experience, you know, in art is very different. But from what I have seen in so many different levels of schooling, I've done this with elementary school and high school, but just recently I've started, you know, teaching in universities and, um, you know, we'll often teach about graffiti and they connect to it in really, really meaningful ways. And they're, and it's always very different. And at first I thought, well, maybe it's because it's a youth culture, you know, and, and graffiti has always been very identified as a youth culture and then street art kind of coming from those roots of you know, of that kind of energetic, um, you know, sort of just taking that space and saying, I'm here, mm-hmm. notice me. A lot of, you know, youth can identify with, you know, with wanting to be seen, you know, just taking that space, coming into their own. Sort in of, public space also, in, specifically. Yeah, in, exactly. You know, like it, making other people publicly, people they don't know, like making them notice them and saying, I, you know, I, I'm here. You, you need to see me. I deserve to be here. Right. I exist. It's a human human nature, I think, to want to feel like people see you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's a good thing. I think that, you know, when you have youth that are doing the opposite of that and saying like don't notice me, don't pay attention to me, that's that is problematic. And when you are working with students and, and youth like that, that's you know, you need to be able to work with them and understand what their, you know, what their experiences and, and lives are in order to, you know, Try to help them if possible. Have you know the the confidence um, and the the desire to to be present. I don't think that everyone wants attention, but I think that it you know it is important to feel that you have a, a place in life. And but there's also an anonymity in graffiti. Yes. So <laughs> you can put yourself out in public space, and you know kids and youth can see that. But it doesn't have to be your name. People don't have to know it's you. So there's that aspect, too. Exactly. Exactly. So when it comes to the art-making practice, it's interesting because a lot of people, uh, you know, and this is like in art specifically, um, will shy away from doing things because they don't think they're good. Mm -hmm. And I started this whole interview by saying, I'm not an artist. I don't. My drawings are bad. You know, and it it is part of my, you know, like psyche at this point that that I'm not a good artist. But when I hear other people saying it, especially 
especially young people. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, you know, where does that come from? Where do we get this? Because, you know, children love doing art and they are not concerned if they're good or bad, but they, they love to do it. And somewhere along the lines, we lose that because we're afraid of being judged, because we're taught, you know, classical techniques and this and that. And you're, I remember, you know, being told in grade seven, my color wheel was no good. And I was like, oh, well, forget it. <laughs> you know? As soon as comparisons start to take place. That's it. That's yeah. it. And so a lot of our educational system is based on, you know, grading and comparisons. And this is where your work should be. So if it's anything below that, it needs to improve. And when you're talking about something as expressive as art and as, you know, meaningful and as, you know, something that is part of, of your identity, when it's getting judged and being told it's not as good as other people, well, people don't want to do it anymore. And, and that makes sense. So graffiti and street art give the artist or the person doing it, the writer, the artist, you know, the opportunity to create their own identity. To, right. You and know. the whole purpose is to create your own tag that's not supposed to look like anybody else's. It's exactly. supposed to be completely original and different. Exactly. And embrace that. Yes. And that other people who would judge it, you know, based on our, you know, sort of traditional society can't read it. And so their judgment is irrelevant. You're not part of this. So, like, if right. you think it's ugly, great, because you, you're not supposed to like it anyway. And that's something I've always really, really loved about graffiti was just that notion of, like, this is for us. It's not important what other people think or, or how other people outside of graffiti judge it because we are the judges of, of our own culture. And I thought, you know, like... If that's something that, you know, that kind of confidence can can be, you know, translated somehow into school, you know, a, a school or a community center, or even just like a, a daily practice for, for youth who are not feeling that way, I think it can be beneficial. I think it's also, you know, really worth saying whenever we do graffiti projects, with, you know, n- no matter the, the level, we always talk about the roots of graffiti, like mm-hmm. where where it comes from, who started it. And the, you know, the fact is, is that the, the people who were doing it in, you know, in its early days when people really started to notice it were all racialized people, you know, primarily living in the United States who were experiencing, um, you know, just horrible living conditions. Um, you know, it, it's like racism out, you know, outright. I mean, not that it, it's it's just different today. I'm, you know, I think the experiences of, of racialized people are just as bad in very different ways today. But when graffiti was starting, you know, th- this notion of taking space and, and um, you know, putting your name out there was that these people had no other opportunity to do it. Right. They had no materials, no access, no, there was nothing. And it was so interesting talking to, um, you know, I was recently connected with a writer, Kel First, from, you know, the, these, like, first-generation graffiti writers, and I had invited him to, to do a conference, um, you know, at a school I was, I was working at in the U.S., and just hearing his story about, you know, the reasons that, that they were doing it then and, you know, that, that, that nothing else was available to them. Right. Um, it's really important to, to remember that and, and to remember that, you know, this culture comes from that. Like, you know, the, it's, it, it, it's, I don't know how, like the, the words are not, you know, they're not there. Like a reclaiming mind, space, reclaiming yeah. public space. You know, it's like a visceral, like this is, you know, we're here and we're tired of being ignored and we're we're tired of, of the, you know, you don't think anyone lives here because of these buildings are burnt out and because of what you see on the news and, and you don't, you know, you don't care about whatever goes on, you know, down below this this train station or, you know, the, the, the platforms. 
but we we exist and they're and they were you know proud of that and they had that you know that energy and and I just I I have so much admiration and respect um you know for that just for that mindset and and you know for what they brought and and for the way that they really changed um they changed the world like they really did and so you know there's many things uh you know there's many elements of graffiti there's there's many things you know that people may not like or you know there's it's not like it's just great and and everything about graffiti is fabulous but i think that you know for me the people that i have met the artists that i work with and and you know the the elements of the culture that i that i see and have learned from at, at its inception or at, at the beginnings of what we recognize you know today as as uh, as graffiti culture i think that you know they're so important in the world that we live in now and and giving people not not even giving people voice because people have voice mm. but making sure that you know you are you are an active supporter when people take voice and you know make sure that that you are doing what you need to do to support people who are who are coming into their own that way right and supporting graffiti culture doesn't necessarily mean supporting and promoting vandalism of public spaces right there are many <laughs> other ways that you can support that culture and bring youth and kids into that culture and help them learn to have that kind of authorship and authority and, as you say, like just pride in themselves and find pride in being creative and finding their own voice without supporting illegal activities. You know, there's there's many levels of ways that people can support that and municipalities can support that. Right. And I think that that's, you know, that's where finding that finding a balance, but always working with someone who is active or has been active in graffiti is really important because, you know, it you can't talk about graffiti without having, you know, even if you try to bring it up without having one of the kids, you know, ask about, well, is it illegal? Is it, you know, how do you do, like, where do you do it? How do you do it in the middle of the night? They have questions they right. want, they want answered and, and rightfully so. And so, you know, not glamorizing and, you know, making it this, you know, that, that element of, of graffiti, something that, you know, you're, you're trying to sell to them. But I think that with kids, especially like you need to be honest, you need to be able to have the conversation with them about, you know, the different elements of graffiti and the different ways that it works and the different, you know, reasons that people do it. Everybody who does graffiti, like everybody who does anything has their own reasons and and they get their own thing out of it and so you need to be honest you know age appropriately but you need to be honest with kids when you have those conversations and you can only really be honest when you're speaking from a point of experience like my understanding from of graffiti comes from talking to people who do it but that's different than your understanding when you've put yourself in danger i mean a lot of writers are putting themselves at risk when they go out and paint and they have their own reasons for doing it but you can't understand it unless you have them talk about it themselves Right. So, you know, I mean, to me, like, that's always been something that we're very aware of. And you have to, again, coming back to choosing artists, like, you know, choosing people to come into schools that are um, able to, you know, and comfortable having those kinds of conversations with students and, and, you know, like being able to identify what age they're working with and, and what is, you know, age appropriate in terms of these kinds of conversations to make sure that everyone gets the, the most out of the experience. But coming back to the question of why, you know, graffiti and street art is so interesting and and you know relates so well to youth is because i think that it's you know it's all of those things about identity but it's that you know there's there are still not as many rules around 
these types of art. You know, when you're in art school or, you know, the way that we are brought up to think about art, there's a lot of rules that go mm-hmm. wrong with it. And how do you, you know, paint something realistic or, you know, or not and have it be like totally crazy. And it's just, it feels like a lot of, um, there's a lot of pressure when it comes to, to producing art. <laughs> For sure. You know, and, and I'm sure that artists feel that, you know, more than anyone. Um, but I think that when you are able to, you know, introduce art styles uh, that that don't have that same kind of societal pressure, maybe because they haven't existed as long, maybe because they're not as well known. I mean, there could, there could be a lot of reasons for it. But I think that it's something that, you know, youth are uh, automatically kind of interested and connected to because finally, you know, they can do something without there being that concern of, of judgment or, um, you know, sort of preconceived notion about how it's going to look before it's finished because they're not really sure themselves. They haven't, they don't have a lot of different examples of what it should look like. So it gives them that freedom and that's exciting too. Yeah, excellent. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the CICU, what that means and uh, what that means for under pressure and how under pressure is kind of expanding and pivoting and, you know, reaching its tentacles even further. Sure. Well, so the CICU stands for Convention Internationale de la Culture Urbaine. So that's the official title of our not-for-profit company that uh, runs, you know, it doesn't run under pressure, but I guess it, it's the, you know, it is the company that allows under pressure to uh, exist in a formal sense now. On paper. <laughs> on paper, exactly. Uh, you know, back in the day when it was one day and, and done illegally, it did not exist on paper, right. you know. And um, and there was, a, there was a time when we needed to decide, what are we doing with this event? What do we want to do? We want to keep doing it, you know, in the illegal way? Is that feasible? Is it possible? Um, the city had fought under pressure for a very long time, and they, you know, made it very difficult for people to you know, make it happen. And that started to pivot slowly as well uh, through a lot of work that, you know, that was done even before uh, I got involved. And so as there was more support given to it, then it was like, well, if you want to you know, make it make it more accessible to people, use different spaces instead of just that, you know, like one back area. Then as you become bigger and more noticeable, then they're also, you know, along with that, there are other sort of expectations. And, and I suppose to close off the streets or several streets for the weekend, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of bureaucracy and red tape and procedures. Yes. So that's, you know, something I never really intended on, on ever having to do, but it was a partnership that was started with... Um, with the uh, the Merchants Association when they had one of, of that area. And so they said, oh, well, we'll close off the street. We'll hold the street sale at the same time as under pressure, and it'll just give us all the chance to work together. And so that was great. Um, but that only lasted a couple of years, and then that Merchants Association sort of, you know, disbanded or, or what have you. And, you know, it, it was I was given the sort of ultimatum of either you start your own company, not-for-profit, and fund your own event and, you know, do all of these things, or we can't help you anymore, you know? And so it was like, well, we, we either have to continue at the level of what we were doing in partnership with this, you know, the, the, the Merchants Association or figure out something different. And once you create something and you create expectations with your community, you don't want to 
go backwards. It doesn't right. feel like the right move, you know? So I said, okay, well, not knowing how much work this is going to be, I was like, sure, let's let's do that, you know? And so we started the company, and uh, yeah, and I mean, we shut down the street. We shut down St. Catherine Street to do the event, which is like a lot of, uh, it's a lot of paperwork. This is insurance. There's Ignorance is truly bliss. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's like the only thing that makes us move forward with planning is not knowing the amount of work. Yes, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it was like, oh, well, you just have to do this. And I thought, okay, sure, no problem. And, and that's not at all what it is. So, um, but, you know, we, 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 we are where we are now. And that was, I think, seven years ago when I started the, the not-for-profit company. So now we run autonomously uh, completely. So, you know, we, we shut down the streets. We do our, you know, we get our permits. We get our insurance. We do all of those kinds of things. Um, you know, and we do them all very efficiently on paper. What having, you know, a not-for-profit also enables uh, enables us to do is to you know do other projects in schools and it also allows me to do a scholarship program which is something that's really become very important to me because uh, we had the person who was the music coordinator for under pressure up until um, our fifth 20, sorry, not 15, our 20th anniversary, Sharon McGugan um, passed away. And that was a huge loss for, you know, everyone, for the for the whole community. And Sharon was someone that, you know, I learned a great deal from in the time that I worked with her. And I just respected her so much as, you know, as a woman, specifically, um, you know, kind of in interacting in these spaces. And, uh, and I just really loved her. So uh, when that happened, I wanted to honor her. And, you know, people ask about a mural or, you know, this or that. But murals are ephemeral. And, you know, even if they last five, ten years, they won't last forever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my heart is always in, in supporting, you know, youth as much as possible. Uh, so we started a scholarship fund in her name, uh, which we do at James Link. So we give two $500 scholarships uh, every year to students that are that are graduating. And whether or not they're going, uh, you know, to, to CJEP or to vocational school, uh, the idea is, is to give them funding, um, this $500, because it's uh, achievement through participation in the arts. So, you know, students who are not necessarily winning awards for for their art, but who have used art to get themselves through school. Right. And if they want to continue as artists, then, you know, this can help them do it in school or it can help them do it, you know, independently if they want to take a year or whatever and, and just continue in their art practice. So, um, you know, having a having a not-for-profit company, you know, has, has allowed me to do all of those other things uh, as well as can keep under pressure going. I just thought of something, I'm um, just pivoting back on something you said, if you could elaborate a little bit more about uh, women in street art and uh, hip-hop culture. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a big <laughs> question. Uh, in I guess a, I was thinking also about the implementation of Queen's Creation right. and kind of like making more of like an official space and place to honour women within this culture. Yeah, and so that's, you know, that's why it's a, it's a big question because it just feels like, um, you know, when we, I started Queen's Creation, so that's a that's an event that honors um, and puts the spotlight on women across you know the different disciplines in the urban arts, uh, and really only invites women to participate in this space. Um, and so I, I had, you know, co-founded or, or started that event. Um, well, it would have been seven years last year, so. I can't remember what year that was, but, um, you know, and it started, uh, we had a, um, a panel discussion as part of Under Pressure one year, and it was about women in, in street art, women in graffiti. And, uh, you know, it just the overall sense was is that there's a lot of women that are out there that are doing it, especially now street art. You're seeing a lot more women um, be active, but the spaces are not necessarily welcoming to women. You don't see them as present. Even if there's more and more, you still aren't seeing them very present, you know, in these spaces. 
and that you know still primarily in hip-hop culture overall women are sexualized like that's really their role is to be objectified and you know whether they are artists and are you know sexual objects as artists or they're just sort of in the background and you know being sexualized that way that's the role women play and I find, obviously, I find it extremely problematic. Um, most, you know, and if women want to take that space uh, and and do that, then I have no, you know, that's not up to me to say what women should and shouldn't do. But for women who don't, like that space, they're just not visible, right, in, in these spaces. And I even see it in Under Pressure. I mean, it's, you know, most of the people who are in the event, whether they're participating or even spectators, like you see a lot, a lot of, you know, male identifying people who are present and i wanted to do something not to discourage men but to encourage the women women and and yeah you know and and people who identify as women and people who want to support people who are you know identify as women in these places where they don't necessarily feel comfortable either so it's not only that you're kind of outnumbered in a lot of ways but that you also don't feel comfortable taking the space because i know specifically in the dance community that is a big problem right um you know and for younger girls like they don't feel confident they don't feel safe a lot to take space on a dance floor it can break dance battles yes yeah a lot so you know the idea was well you know it's it's not to um you know exclude anyone but we want to create a safe space for for women to create to produce and for people to come and support them whoever those people may be men or women or you know otherwise and that's how queen's creation started and you know to me again it was the, the the idea was i'm I don't identify with uh, with an, as an artist or with any particular artist community, but I know that I have a platform through Under Pressure. And so it was really important that I use, you know, the tools available to me and that I've worked to, to create, um, you know, to, to be able to offer this as, a, as an opportunity or as a space to, you know, to the women who were, who were speaking on this panel and who were kind of speaking on behalf of a lot of other women as well. And then through that work, you know, starting it, you know, slowly and through that work also identified that, you know, there's white women take up a lot of space in, I mean, in everything. Uh, and, you know, in this culture specifically where, you know, hip hop was, it's black culture, but all, you know, often is really dominated uh, by white people in, at this point. And so was really seeing like, yes, we can hold an event, you know, that's for women, but like, what is the representation of women mm-hmm. who are now at these, you know, taking up this space? So just continuing to, to challenge ourselves to make sure that as many, um, you know, black women, indigenous women, um, you know, could be present uh, in whether it was panels or production or workshops or, you know, whatever whatever activities we did, because we, we've done many different kinds of things across the years. So it was a really, um, I think that that was interesting because it, it was a space that allowed me to ask those questions and to, and to keep pushing a little bit, you know, a little bit further um, into this notion of, of inclusivity in, you know, urban culture. Right. Yeah, we use this word, exclusivity, a lot, but what does it really mean? And do we constantly keep challenging ourselves to rethink and redefine and reevaluate? Just you know, reevaluating all the time. Yeah, and I, you know, I've learned. Um, you know, it's hard at the beginning, but you know, I've learned that it's you. You have to be uncomfortable. Like you have to. Uh, be okay with people challenging you and saying, well, why is it that on your panel it's five white women? And not taking that as, you know, offense. I mean, it, you like I was always like, wow, I should have thought of that, you know, but it, it's okay that, you know, you get 
called out or that someone points it out, and then what do you do about it after? And right. So how do you I, learn from it? How do you it. move forward? That's it. You know, and and if you want your event to do what you're saying that it's supposed to be doing, what do you do? Right. And so it was just a really. Uh, I loved Queen's Creation for that because the basis of Queen's Creation was really to you know. Um, challenge this notion of exclusivity and tr- and try to continuously year after year be be increasingly inclusive with our offer while understanding that you know the the focus or the emphasis was you know was on women or female identifying participants in urban culture but like what does that also mean you know who is who then you know are we naturally not including if we're saying if we're saying women, you know? Yeah. So does Queen's, Queen's Creation happen at a different time of year, or does it happen multiple times throughout the year? What's the kind of scheduling or frequency of, of events and programming? Well, so now we're in a reconstruction phase with uh, with Queen's Creation, and, and I'm fine with that. Uh, when, you know, the pandemic hit last year, um, you know, I had a lot of decisions to make about Under Pressure because Under Pressure was turning 25 and it's like a huge milestone for an event and was like, I need to focus, you know, on on this because I also have a job and I have a kid and I have, you know, like I, there's only so many hours in my day. And there's a global, you know, <laughs> epidemic. Yeah. So like what, you know, I, I can try and sort this out. Let's try to figure that out. So, you know, we just, we put Queen's Creation on pause because prior to the pandemic, um, Queen's Creation had started taking place during under pressure because the idea was uh, a lot of people will come into Montreal dancers artists you know from other places whether it's in Canada the US or internationally and they'll come in for under pressure because it is as established as it is and so the idea was well we'll hold queen's creation as part of it not you know not as a challenge but as a way for people to be uh you know so they can participate in both, so people can be more aware of what we're doing, of what we're trying to achieve. And, and so that was, you know, we made the decision um, to put it uh, as one with Under Pressure probably three years into Queen's Creation uh, existing. And I think, it was, I think it was a wise move at the time. Now, I mean, Under Pressure last year and this year is a virtual event. So, you know, after 2021 is finished, um, for 2022, we'll see... We'll see what happens, you know, we'll, whether we want to go back to doing a, you know, a, a one day or, you know, like a two day event. If we want to change that and maybe make it multiple times through the year, I, you know, we'll we'll have some decisions to make. But um, I'm not sure yet. That's fine. That's fair. I think a lot of people don't know what they're doing in 2022. <laughs> <laughs> if there is a 2020. <laughs> um. So one other thing I wanted to ask about Under Pressure is that I've always felt like it's, you know, it's always really remained so true to its roots. And I feel like, you know, it has grown and evolved and changed over the years. But there's something about it that has really stayed committed to what it is. And I think many festivals, things things always want to get bigger. Things always want to get supersized. And everybody wants to get, like, sponsorship and get, like, blown up, you know. And I feel like Under Pressure could probably have that kind of funding and sponsorship and you know but i feel like it's a decision that you've all made to kind of keep your your independence what tell me more about that 
Yeah, and, and that's exactly what it is. I think, you know, for some people, um, they, they see us and they think like, you know, and they ask, I mean, many people ask, well, why aren't you, you know, why aren't you doing Mural Festival is, you know, X, Y, Z, why aren't you why aren't doing Why aren't you 20 that? blocks long and why aren't you up for a week and why aren't you, you know. <laughs> why isn't Fido sponsoring you and <laughs> exactly. this and that? And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> and and that's fine. I think that we are conditioned maybe uh you know to experience these bigger events and yeah. we are we are conditioned to think like once you achieve something bigger is better right it's bigger. like the supersize culture yes you know do you yeah. want fries with that yeah yeah no, no. i don't <laughs> I, I just, just want, want a burger you know <laughs> we don't always have to supersize everything exactly and when you you know and even it, it, it's the same experience in schools like you know well how many students are attending your club mm-hmm. i can tell you when i've got 25 students in a mural project i am losing my mind trying to make sure that people aren't spilling paint on the floor and this and that do i know everybody's name no like never you know when i have 10 kids or five then all of a sudden your experience is like so memorable and important the kids from that first year james ling project that we spoke about before they are in their 20s now and i am still in contact with the majority of them well five or ten really engaged kids is obviously better than 25 half-engaged kids or people who are just there to fill the time. Right. But when you see pictures, you see Mm -hmm. 25 kids and you're like, oh, that was a big success. And you see five and you're like, oh, I guess they didn't like it much. Mm -hmm. Except that in the long run, I've got five kids now who I consider to be like younger brothers to me, you know, like I still look out for them. And and like those connections and relationships have changed my life. Like they they have, they've taught me so much um, about myself and, and about, you know, relationships with people and all of those kinds of things. I don't have that with, you know, people when we do large events. And so it's the same with Under Pressure. Yes, you know, if we wanted to, I mean, if Sterling had wanted to sell Under Pressure, you know, to corporate America, you know, when graffiti was really cool in the, you know, 90s or whatever, (laughs) he could have, of course. And it would have looked like Mural Festival does today. But we don't want that. You know, I mean, can we do things better? Of course, it can always get better, but we do, it's not going to get bigger. The right. idea is, is that when people come in, I want to be able to talk to every artist who performs and participates in Under Pressure. You know, like I want to be able to have the time to, to say thank you to people. I want to be able to, um, you know, enjoy the event. And the whole uh, reason that people and artists keep coming back, they don't get paid they bring their own paint. Right. They, if they travel in from anywhere that's not Montreal, they pay that themselves. Mm-hmm. We don't pay for anything because, well, we can't, you know, um, not because we don't want to support artists, but we don't have the funding. But the idea is, is that they do it because it's important to them. And so when they're there, they have the experience that they want to have. They're chilling with their friends. It's just like it's there's no pressure in that, you know. <laughs> and when everybody knows that everyone else is there for that reason, there's also a different dynamic between artists and performers. Exactly. We're choosing to be here. It's not like, you know, oh, well, that person's getting paid and, you know, and that person's getting paid. uh, Like, we've, you know, all heard the way that international guests get paid, you know, 50 grand. Someone's getting paid this much. That person's (laughs) getting paid this much. I'm only getting paid this much. Why? (laughs) And so, you know, out of respect for the artists and out of respect for the culture, like, if I'm going to pay someone, I'm going to pay the same amount to everyone because I appreciate everyone's participation as much. But, you know, the idea for us is that it's not about that. People will keep coming back to something if they love it. And the person who, you know, runs the volunteers for Under Pressure, he lives in Australia now. 
he comes back. He li- he's lived there for like five or six years now. Wow. He comes back for a month every year to run the volunteers, to help me, you know, like not lose my mind. And and it's because like it's part of his it's part of his life. Like it's part of his identity. And so that's what we offer. Like people, you know, oh, well, more people would come down under pressure if you did more X, Y, Z. Like, I don't want that. I want the people who are there to be there because they want to be. I want them to have a memorable experience. I don't want it to be something disingenuous. And I think that, you know, we're able to to offer that and to keep offering it because we're all there for the same reason. That concentration also speaks volumes. Rather than diluting things over a longer period of time, you know that when you come for one or two days or on either of those two days, you know it's going to be like a really condensed, concentrated feeling when you're there. Yeah. And, you know, we're not trying to sell you anything. We don't have booths for like, you know, experiential. I don't even know the marketing terms. Like, I'm not a marketing person. And I think that, you know, as much as that maybe can be a downfall sometimes, it's a benefit because I'm not trying to sell you something. That's not the point at all. And I think that, you know, because that's not what people experience when they come to Under Pressure, it's not that sanitized festival experience that you have when you go to any other corporate festival. No one's saying there's anything wrong with going and walking through the street sale or or whatever, but it's not going to be the same kind of thing if you go and experience a community-based event. It's a block party. And Cool Herc has come to Under Pressure multiple times, and every time he comes, He's like, this is what it was like. Mm-hmm. This is the closest that I have experienced since hip hop was born to, you know, this is this is what it was like back then. And you've managed to recreate it and you keep recreating it. I mean, you know, not word for word, <laughs> but that's but that's, you know, that's what it that's what it is. And that's why he keeps coming back. We just talked to him on the phone like last week. And he always checks in with us, like, how are you doing? How are things going? This is the person who started hip hop. And that's why he supports Under Pressure, because we are doing what he did back then at the birth of this, you know, movement that has changed lives worldwide. And that's a level of respect you can't buy. No, exactly. And it's not, you know, it's not things that you will forget. Like, you'll never forget the experiences that you have, or you'll never confuse them. Like, was that the jazz festival, or was that just for last? Like, exactly. you, know, you know, but you know, when you're at Under Pressure, like, you know where you are. And and it's not, you know, you, you feel included, you feel like you're you're part of something. You maybe you don't know what it is if you're just kind of, you know, there for your first time, but you won't confuse it with anything else. And I think that, you know, it's so important to keep offering that as the world changes and continues to really go towards this, you know, notion of of you know, that like really corporate Um, kind of experience and we want you here because you're a potential customer if i can get you now then you'll buy my stuff for the next 10 years or what have you and then they also have no responsibility those companies that buy you know three-year contracts with with uh, you know different kinds of festivals well they have no moral obligation they do three years and then they're gone well, you know, that's not helpful for us. Right. I, if I exist 25 years, we're going to exist 30 or 40. I can't have someone coming in for three years and then, you know, having to try and refine that stream of funding again. Like, Right. You're just constantly it's a constant hunt. Exactly. And then if that's your full-time job and you, you know, I mean, the Jazz Festival, obviously, that's not their concern. They have many different kinds of sponsors. But this is not my full-time job, and I don't want it to be. I don't look for funding to be able to pay myself to do it because then it will take the joy out of it. You know, I have a job. I like my job. That's fine. 
but I do this because I want to and I love it. And if and I, so does everybody else this, who participates and helps out. That's it, exactly. And if I needed to be paid for it, then it would only last a few years until I was like, I hate it. I don't want to do this anymore. And the day that I, you know, that it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to do this and I need to be paid, then I need to start looking for someone to replace me. Step down. If you had the ears of municipal borough mayors, you know, people who work for cities who don't have any kind of urban culture or graffiti uh, implemented programming, what would you say to them to help encourage them? To let them know like how important this is, that, that that they should do something. Well, I think what's interesting, you know, about um, municipalities and, and governance of muni- like not larger governance, but municipalities minimally, is that we're seeing a lot of younger people start to take roles within elected kind of, you know, spaces. And so to those people, you know, I just encourage you to to remember what your youth was like, the things that really marked you and go back to those things and and look for the people who are doing them. Because in, you know, in Montreal, we're a very, you know, vibrant kind of cultured city and, you know, we sometimes it takes a lot of work, but you know, re- remember to go towards the people who are doing things and producing things when you want to, you know, try and help support different kinds of cultures to, to exist in, in public spaces. And so for cities that are, you know, that are not, I would just suggest go towards the people who are doing it and look at, you know, and try to remember the experiences that, that you had as a youth and think about the ways that, you know, that they impacted you and that, you know, th- that you're, you're, the ways that your mind has been able to be open to different kinds of things, um, you know, through your, through your various experiences and bring that with you into, you know, your, your municipal politics. Because we have different, you know, we have these preconceived notions again about politicians and what they do and what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to act. And I think that, you know, we just need to keep undoing a lot of that um, mentality and think that, you know, if if we elect people to represent us, then they need to look at what people are doing. They need to remember what it's like to be a citizen See in where the, the interest actually lies. That's it. And go to don't try to recreate something. Go to the people who are already doing it. That's like one of my pet peeves is you see something and you're like, oh, great, we should have that here. Let's hire a bunch of people who don't know anything and we'll get them to do it. Please don't do that. <laughs> you know, be honest. Always have integrity when you, you know, when you walk into a space, when you want to help support something. Don't think that you need to take over. Don't think that you have to try to reinvent, you know, something that already exists on its own. Be an honest supporter of, of things that are... Of what's already happening. That's it. And, you know, do what you need to do to get behind it instead of trying to be in front of it. Mm. Is there anything else you would like to add or... Anything you think we didn't really cover that you wanted to mention? No, I think that's that was it. Pretty solid. <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this has been amazing. Uh, it's been so great to talk to you and to hear all of these great stories about the history of Under Pressure. And just, you know, to re kind of reiterate how amazing and vibrant it is as a festival and as a, as a community. And I'm so excited to see what keeps happening in the years to come. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your energy and your passion with me today and all the listeners. 
Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for your interest, you know, and for your support. Like it's because of artists like yourself, you know, that understand and that value the work that that we do that we're able to keep going. So I just, you know, invite everyone who is listening to to come and and to see what it is that, you know, that under pressure kind of stands for and and that artists like yourself are are creating because it's it's like magic. Absolutely. It is. That's a great word to end on. <laughs> magic. <Yeah. laughs> Thank you again, Melissa. Thank you. For further information about today's guest and to learn more about the podcast, follow the Art in the Open link at ShellyMillerStudio.com. And don't forget to keep exploring Art in the Open. Art in the Open.